When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Okay, welcome to High Theory. Um, Today, I am speaking with Iram Alam about shortage. Iram, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, well, first, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, my name is Hiram Alam. I'm an assistant professor in the history of science department at Harvard, and I work on history of medicine in the 20th century with a focus on questions of how health intersects with race and globalization and migration. All right. So tell us, what the heck is a shortage? Well, it's a contested term, so it depends on who you ask. In the work that I do, part of what I'm trying to understand is how different players are actually constructing this question of a shortage. It is a political term. And on the one hand, you have physicians who in the 20th century, especially in the early 20th century, are invested in shortage being calculated as an equation of doctors per population. You have other economists who are trying to maximize productivity, and they're trying to understand shortage in terms of units of work done over periods of time. But broadly, it is some kind of general feeling of deficit that exists in the health workforce in regards to the services that are needed for a population. Cool. So I know that your research focuses on the shortage of doctors in the U.S. I'm curious if there are other kinds of shortages that you've run into. Great question, because infrastructure is a big aspect of this whole shortage question as well. When it comes to supplies, it also really impacts this idea of shortage. Also, you have to start thinking about shortage for whom, where is the shortage actually located? You know, what is the geographical space of shortage. And so all of these things come into how people are thinking about this term and deciding to use it. Okay, so it's a question about distribution of resources. It is. Yes, it's a question of distribution of resources for some people. Okay. (laughs) For some people, that's not necessarily the issue. There are physicians who will argue that this should be just something that is in relation to a population. And that if somebody is actually looking for some kind of resource, they will find it. 
you know, it's a very free market kind of orientation. Even if that resource is located 100 miles away from where they are located, that somehow, you know, the market forces will bring them to the thing that they actually need. So yes, on one hand, it is about a distribution of resources for some parties and for some parties, it is not exactly in those terms. Okay. Can I ask you a really silly question? Mm-hmm. Because you said there are shortages of supplies as well as labor shortages in your research. Like, what other things can I have shortages of? Are there, like, shortages of maple syrup in this world? There are. It's interesting, actually, the whole maple syrup question. I got very into the maple syrup cartels in Quebec. Okay. But in a similar kind of way, shortage in these kinds of terms, they're economic constructs in order to sustain a certain kind of supply and demand dynamic and to sustain certain kinds of prices. And so when it comes to things like oil and when it comes to things like maple syrup, the utility of shortage is that you're able to control and stabilize price. Okay. Similarly, this is what was happening in the 20th century with physicians. So in the early 20th century, there was a concerted effort by what organized medicine or established medicine, and that can be read as wealthy white men, Mm -hmm. to limit and control the supply of people that were allowed to enter the profession. And that was so they could maintain their status and they could also maintain the profitability of medicine, the incomes that they were getting from these things. So part of what they did was use all of these kinds of social mechanisms of licensure or bureaucratic mechanisms in order to constrain the number of physicians that were actually able to operate within the U.S. healthcare landscape. And so it is a term that doesn't really have an organic kind of, oh, there's a shortage of something or I don't have enough of something. It's Mm -hmm. a very politically... Uh, motivated decision around their existing a shortage and continuing to maintain that for many, many, many years. Yeah. And so I think we're starting to get to the second question, which is, how do I use a shortage? Well, a shortage has a lot of political utility. So depending on who you are, for the group that we were just talking about, the kind of established physician labor a shortage has the function of being able to maintain the class, the race, the gendered organization of the profession. For other people who are organizing against this concept, so you have a lot of, especially in the 1960s, a lot of political activity. This is where a lot of the Black Panthers and their work around health activism also entered into the scene because they're starting to look at shortage. They're starting to see how it's very geographically and racially and spatially motivated and are saying, what is happening with this thing? We need to organize for a better distribution of resources because this is extremely detrimental to certain communities. They're being allowed to remain in very, very sick and chronically ill kinds of conditions. And then, you know, on the flip side, you have this huge economic push to just maximize the speed. So you have managed care that's coming into the picture at this period of time as well. And so for them, they don't really see a shortage. They just want to have people work faster. 
spend less time with patients, you know, change different kinds of billing codes and the ways that physicians do the work that they are supposed to do in order to say, no, there isn't actually a shortage and these other kinds of economic changes Mm -hmm. will mitigate this issue. So, yeah, it's used in a myriad of ways. And then it's also, you know, politically, it was used to allow for this whole shift in immigration to happen in 1965. So in 1964, the Department of Labor declared a doctor shortage. And in 1965, in the Hart Seller Immigration and Nationality Act, which was a huge reform to immigration in the United States, it was the first time that people of Asian or African origin were able to even enter the United States legally and to actually even think about possible routes to citizenship. And politicians were able to use this idea of shortage, kind of mix it up into this immigration debate and say, well, we can do two things with this immigration bill. We can open up our doors to these newly minted post-colonial nations. And we can also say, alleviate this kind of deficit that we're immediately facing in the United States in terms of physician labor force. I heard you talk about this at a conference recently, and I was struck by how few people that I have encountered in the field of medical humanities talk about the role of physicians who are trained outside the U.S. working in the U.S. And it just seems to be an extraordinary blind spot when it's like an extraordinarily large percentage of the workforce. Yeah. And I do think that some of it has to do with, you know, much, maybe much larger conversation, but that the U.S. history of medicine also conversations are so invested in a black-white binary that when you have to contend with this very different kind of post-colonial migration and how this elite labor is racialized now within the social space of the U.S., I think it it's a mishmash of kind of different analytics that generally don't come together. And so I think that actually has something to do with why this topic has just remained open in a kind of comprehensive way. Maybe you can say a bit more about how the concept of shortage is mobilized in those debates around immigration in 1965. Cause like in one sense, in the sort of way you told it a moment ago, it sounds pretty altruistic. It's <laughs> just like, hey, we're reforming our immigration and we want to like support these newly post-colonial nations and we want to get some doctors. <laughs> like, seems like win-win, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, um, I think foreign policy is never altruistic. <laughs> it's number one takeaway. And this also wasn't altruistic. We're in the middle of the Cold War and broadcasting any kind of deficiency in scientific or medical manpower also has detrimental effects vis-a-vis the USSR. So part of it was covering over the fact that the United States had these internal domestic disputes. There was this agitation that was happening in regards to healthcare people were saying that this is a part of civil rights. And in fact, immigration reform is also a part of civil rights. It's not a mistake that this bill was passed in October of 1965. Medicare and Medicaid 
passed in July of 1965. This is a, a large continuum of activity where the United States is trying to address the tensions that are emerging domestically. And one way of doing that is to allow immigration reform and to allow people in. But of course, the caveat was that it was a very programmatic kind of immigration. It was an elite immigration tied to, okay, if there's a labor shortage, these are the special categories of people that we want entry into the United States. And, you know, at the same time, for example, like the Bracero program was closed. And so that was where you had Mexican laborers who for a very long time, from the 40s to the 60s, were allowed entry into the United States for labor. And so that program shuts down and something like this elite labor migration is then promoted and there's a shift to that instead. So downstream effects are that the people that generally are coming have been educated in country of origin. And many of those countries, and especially the ones that I focus on, which are in South Asia, the best medical schools are the ones that are government subsidized. So the people that are able to go to those schools get educated and trained for free. And then they're able to leverage that education and come to the United States. And often what they were doing is there were shortages within the country of origin. So India had shortages, and but there was no way to incentivize people to actually stay. So they tried, you know, to kind of use this altruistic language and say, well, what about the shortages in the rural communities and in underserved communities and major cities in India? But the draw of the United States, the economic gains that are possible when one does this kind of migration and is able to work in the United States, I think we're just too much of a draw. So the downstream effects are the sequences of shortages in all of these places. And we reached a point where in 2010, the WHO, they drew up this global code of practice where they were really urging countries to think about how they're recruiting labor, what the effects of this are going to be in the local geographies for which people are coming. And they also really pushed the countries that are the largest kind of receiving countries, so the United States, Canada, Australia, the UK, they urged them to really focus on trying to bolster from within their health workforce so that this doesn't have to be the kind of easiest tool that's used. And I also just want to make very, very clear that when I talk about this stuff, this isn't based on some kind of like rational choice economics where somebody should be able to make a decision and do whatever they want. It's more looking at these systems are such that they create flows that are really unidirectional. Okay. Well, let me ask you our final question. Which sounds unlikely given our previous conversation. Can you tell me how will a shortage save the world? Well, you have to bear with me while I do some mental gymnastics to answer this question. But yeah, as I'm just saying, shortage is a political tool. And mm-hmm. how it can save the world is by getting mobilized 
in order to actually change the ways that these systems are constructed and the directionality of this sort of flow. So there are other possibilities. So Cuba overproduces physicians. They ask people from all different parts of the world and what is shorthand called third world to come to Cuba in order to get medical training along with Cuban physicians. And then they go out into places where there is need in order to alleviate those kinds of things. You know, when the pandemic first started and Italy was the epicenter, Cuban physicians were one of the first groups to actually go to Italy and to help provide care. And so on buildings, so like Grazi Cuba written because it was an understanding of that this was actually vital support that was given. So the question I think when it comes to shortage is how will it change the world? Well, maybe it can rechange the directionality of how we're thinking about kinds of movement and distribution of resources, not just on the national scale, but I think really on an international scale and shifting that in ways that are more equitable. And once again, the pandemic has made very, very clear that there <laughs> these political demarcations are not going to help us contend with the next thing that's going to come. But instead, you know, we continually rely on unidirectional importation, which once again in COVID also happened where all borders were closed. And in June, there was a special proclamation that had one caveat, which was that physicians who could provide COVID care were allowed entry into the United States. And so the State Department on their Twitter was tweeting, you know, go to your embassies in order to get these mission critical visas to come to the United States. And if something like that is happening, and simultaneously India and the United States are the largest, at that time they were the countries with the highest numbers of COVID cases, India is also the largest exporter physician. Well, what does that mean exactly for questions of planetary health. So I think we can use shortage and understand how, in fact, what happens in one place actually has extreme consequences for a lot more of the world and changing the ways that we think about it in terms of this kind of more global interdependence, I think is more impossible way forward. Let me thank you for coming and speaking with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and the lovely conversations. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.